0: Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38-48, through 48, which is located in our church Bibles on page 810. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also.
1: Lord, we thank you for your great promise to us. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Thank you, Father, that that is an acknowledgement by you, that you see us, that you know what we're going through. And we think not only of ourselves, we think of those who are carrying a heavier burden than we are. And our prayer is for them this morning, Lord, that you would lighten their burden that you would ease their load, that they would find rest in you. And that for all of us, with the things that we wrestle with in life, we pray that your word this morning to us would be the encouragement that gives us hope, that gives us endurance and perseverance in the gospel as we apply your words by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I found that what draws my interest these days in the media, probably because I have far less class than you do, is celebrity legal battles. Uh, You'd have to have been living under a rock these past uh, few months or so, not to have heard about the legal battle between Johnny Depp and his former wife, Amber Heard. Interestingly, each made the decision uh, to duke it out in open court, where all of anger and the violence and the perversity of their broken marriage would be exposed for all to see. She judged him a monster, and he pronounced her the real abuser. And now, six years on from their one-year marriage, they are apparently implacable, apparently unreconcilable enemies. What did John Bradford say there? But for the grace of God, go I. Last Sunday, Frank preached on what Jesus had to say about the making of oaths, and he applied that directly and helpfully to a lifestyle for the Christian of simple honesty and a reputation of honesty in the community. What last week's passage and this week's have in common is that they, both of them, apply to someone who finds themselves in a law court. So if you are a witness in court, how will someone know that you are telling the truth? Well, is it the oaths that you're going to make to support your uh, assertions? Or is it because you are known as a consistently honest person? Or if you find yourself at odds with someone and your case has come to court, how will you respond to their insults against you? How will you respond when they have taken something from you and the court is weighing What is right? How will you respond to them from your heart, either in court or on the street, when you might describe them as your enemy? See, all of these questions have to do with the new life that we're called to live in a counter-cultural way for the sake of the gospel. These things are not here as a theory. These things are not here for just a select elite few who manage to practice them. These are not just metaphors. They are meant for us. For us, the church, to live in and to be changed by because of Christ's mercy. So if you will turn to this passage, you'll find it on the reverse side of the worship guide this morning or in the Bible as uh, Delaney has read it to us. That will be helpful as we make our way through it. This is the assertion that by Christ's authority and because of his mercy, three things are now true of the church. This is the first of them. Because we belong to Christ, the principle of how we deal with personal injury has to change. Verse 38 to 39a and verse 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you... You know, whenever Jesus says this, and he does this, he says this for the fifth time in the Sermon on the Mount... You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, the question is, is he contradicting the Old Testament? After all, on this occasion, this is a quote directly from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy. So is Jesus contradicting the Old Testament? Is he saying that this was not true? And the answer to that question is, no, he's not. The clue is, and you'll find this quite often, he refers, notice, to what was said as opposed to what was written. And what had was said what had been said by the rabbis, by the commentators on the Old Testament, by the, the Mishnah, not by what was written and meant in the original law and the prophets. So what is Jesus' complaint here against this misinterpretation? Well, his complaint is that the rabbis have taken a foundational principle in the law, and it's a principle that you and I know. It's the principle of proportionality. It's the principle, if you have any Latin, is lex talionis, which has actually nothing to do with talons, but has to do with the idea of payment in kind. It's the idea that the punishment should fit the crime, which is still a big part of our own Western law today. And they had taken that and they had turned it into something that was never designed to be, a code for personal vengeance. So here is Jesus. He's forcefully correcting that misunderstanding. He's saying to his followers, you are not going to live that way. And at the same time, notice he's going further than Moses did. He's saying more about the law than Moses did, and he's applying the law in ways that Moses could never have done. And this shouldn't have been a surprise for Israel. It shouldn't be a surprise to us, because Moses himself had told Israel in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Which explains a good deal, explains why at the Incident at the Mount of what's called the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, where Peter, James, and John come across uh, Jesus in all of his glory with Moses and with Elijah there. A voice from heaven tells them, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. So, if we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you have to start with these two ideas in view, and we're learning as we go. The first is, is that Jesus is not contradicting the law of God in the Old Testament. He is contradicting a misapplication and a misunderstanding of it. And secondly, he is asserting that he himself is far greater than Moses and that he has the authority to explain the law and to apply it and to intensify it in ways that Moses didn't. Why? Well, because again, the new life of the kingdom is about him. I love my mother-in-law, I have to say that, not only because she might be watching on live stream this morning, but because we all of us can misunderstand the application of the gospel, can't we? It was not just simply those, uh, those Jews of the first century. We consistently do this, we misread the Bible. My mother-in-law has often told my wife and I, uh, and me very kindly, uh, that she knows why it is that we're in full-time ministry, it's because, she says... God needs nice people like you to do his work. To which I want to say two things. Do you know me? And secondly, I want to say at the top of my lungs, what total claptrap, what utter rot. Do you have any idea of that which you speak, woman? But that would not be kind. It would be rude and not helpful to marital peace. So... To be fair, it's not just my mother-in-law, right? It is all of us. We all arrive in the Sermon on the Mount asking ourselves first, so what do I have to do? It's not that that isn't a question. It's just not the first question. It's the wrong place to start. The point here is not to tell yourself, just do this somehow. Just grit your teeth and do this. That's always the world's religious reaction. Just do something. No, the gospel question always begins with this. What is God like? What has God done? And so you see, verse 48, Jesus tells the crowd, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is about who God is. He is perfectly loving. He is long-suffering. It is his loving kindness. It is his grace and mercy. It is his authority to tell us to do this. He has called and empowered his people to live in a new way. Do you think about this? He has placed his spirit within you so that this isn't just theory for you, so that as you step out in faith and try to do this, you will find the power to be able to endure in the doing of it. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, but I say to you. Part of the contemporary powerlessness of the church, I think, is that we've forgotten... That this is the way that we're supposed to live, actually live. This is the good news of what God has done. This is what the Spirit has given you to do and empowered you to do. It is God's ethic for you to actually live by. So how you and I deal with personal injury must change for Jesus' sake. Second, God's grace, notice, requires more than fairness from us to show people the gospel, verses 39 through 42. But I tell you, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. At The risk of uh, dragging you further into the gutter of tabloid news, I, <coughs> I have um, taken to asking myself uh, not what would Jesus do, but what was Johnny Depp thinking I imagine there was a moment when Johnny heard what the newspapers had printed about him back in 2018. If you've got a longer memory, you remember this. And he could have thought to himself, well, am I going to let this go? This was the headline. It's only the Sun. It's only the gutter press. It's not the Washington Post. Or when he read Amber's op-ed in the Washington Post two years later, he could have responded, am I going to let this go? After all, she doesn't name me directly, he could have thought, but no, he did probably what we would do. In our urge to retaliate, to to get our own back, to revenge, we race, don't we, into trouble. So determined to clear his name in the process, he soiled it further. Now that may not have happened to you lately, but you can imagine, can't you, because you've lived with... a fallen nature long enough to know the power of this particular temptation to revenge, to retaliate, to get your own back, to see justice done. And if no one else is going to do it, well, you will do it. You will bring it about. So what's Jesus saying? Things he's saying have changed for you. Now you follow Christ. It is the mercy of Christ shown to you which now must rule the day. And people must see this about the church, not just a personal ethic. They must see it as the way that the church reacts. It is to be different. This is your ethic now from 1 John 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life, Jesus, uh, John says, because we love the brothers. Not just that we will love the brothers and the sisters in the church, but that we will live in a new way with regard to the world as well. So, do you see this? Each Christian must decide what they are going to do in a given situation with this challenge. Do not resist an evil person. So, I think what's helpful as we apply ourselves to this is to remember three things. First of all, that this is a principle. It is a principle that takes creative application in the circumstances you find yourself in. And second, its original context here actually has to do, first of all, with the courtroom. And third, it's not meant directly to apply to every situation in an identical way. It is for you to think this through. How am I going to show the love of Christ in this particular situation? Now, this can't mean that we turn a blind eye to corruption and make a nonsense, then, of the morality and the character of God. Nor can it mean that we become a doormat in the face of threatening evil. Clearly, that would be a major problem for our morality. But this is not easy. And so, in the extreme scenarios that will come into your minds, particularly ones that have to do with the defence of others, you'll notice this isn't one size that fits all. And Christians, as you know this, have had to apply this in different ways in actually kind of similar situations down through the centuries. They've had to think about what this means as the principle of the love of God motivates them. So it is a principle where you are to apply Christ's love in the situation to an evil person as God moves you. And why is that? Well, it's so that others might see that you're interested first, not in fairness to yourself, but you're interested first in Christ for them. So here's a quick example of how this might work out. This is a lighter example than many that we might draw upon. The people who discipled me when I was a teenager, teaching me what the Christian faith was, were having their house painted. I was over one day, and they were having their house painted, and the painter came to them expecting payment, and they got out their checkbook, and he said, actually, I'd prefer cash. I don't really want to have to deal with the taxes So uh, what they did, after some thought, was they paid him by check, but they added the taxes that he would have to pay to the government as a way of having to balance this in a way that was plainly of cost to themselves, but to the honor of Jesus. So it is, I think, that you put off in these situations looking immediately for your own advantage. And you leave to God's court revenge against those who have crossed you. And the principle is to be applied, notice, in different ways, in different situations as God moves you. That's why I think it is that Jesus gives us here these different situations, as if to say, this is going to look different as the motive is applied. So what does Jesus do here? Take a look here at verse 39b. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Have you seen any situation like that recently? It's interesting how it was played out for us on Oscar night, by two people who I think would describe themselves as Christians. It was interesting to me that Denzel Washington took Will Smith aside right after that because he's been discipling him. And I wouldn't presume to tell Chris Rock how he should have reacted when he was treated that way, but in Jesus' day, that was an absolute Humiliation. And Jesus says to the slappy, Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek when someone insults you. Turn the other cheek perhaps when someone cuts you off and says something eminently rude and audible to you. Turn the other cheek for the sake of Christ. Or verse 40 when someone is suing you, there may be an opportunity, yes, for you, even in a courtroom setting for you to show gospel generosity, even at financial disadvantage to yourself. Notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is easy, nor does he say, by the way, this is compulsory, or by the way, this is also straightforward. He doesn't say any of those things, but for his sake, he says, give them the shirt off your back. Or verse 41, to those under Roman occupation. You may know that this actually was a a big factor in uh, the British occupation of American homes back in the 1770s. People who were legally required to carry a soldier's gear or to house uh, a foreign force's troops. And Jesus says, go the second mile. Not because there wasn't a legal opportunity for... For those who are under it not to do it, certainly in the colonies, but because Jesus says, for my sake, for the sake of those soldiers who are noticing what you're doing, go the extra mile. Or verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. I was shown this, I think helpfully, when I was quite a young Christian, I made it a habit when I'm approached by somebody on the street who asks me for money, I listen to what it is they say they need the money for and then I will try to go out and to buy that thing and then give it to them rather than give them the money directly. Because they need to see that the principle is being applied to them as the motivation of the gospel. And then there's also, isn't there, an opportunity for you to say something about the love of Jesus for them and maybe to pray for them as you're giving them something. But again, this is a principle to be applied as the motivation of the gospel moves your heart. And underneath it, it says, don't look for fairness. It says, and I think this is so important right now in our cultural moment, do not insist on your rights. Now, don't be foolish, but perhaps don't allow your idea of what is right for yourself to have the ruling for the day, because this is not for you. It is for the sake of Jesus. So that's the way that Christ has his people think. It's, it's not love for yourself at that moment. It's love for that person through an unexpected act of kindness or generosity. So what are you doing when you do that? When you're doing that, it's uncomfortable. It seems like the other party is getting away with something they shouldn't get away with. Your value is in question, but at that moment, here's an opportunity to look to the cross of Jesus and say, no, that's where my value is, and I need to know, and I need for this person to know that that's where their value could be also, if they were to look to the cross. So you're communicating, aren't you? In all of these instances, my friend, God is offering you his hand. Don't knock it away, because God's grace requires more than fairness for us to show people the gospel. And finally, God's grace replaces our self-interested loyalties with a greater love, verses 43 through 47. If I was to ask you the question, who is your enemy? My guess is actually this is not so terribly difficult for you to do. Perhaps as that word enemy comes to your mind, immediately there's a face that's flashed up on the screen, or maybe several. And you know it. Notice this is a definition of the heart and not of the textbook. That's why Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. It's something you will feel. You've said to yourself, this person is my enemy. And so for you, with your enemy, you have a decision to make. Will you continue responding to them as the world does, with retaliation, with revenge, with defensiveness? Or will you make the costly decision to live as Jesus calls you to, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, this is not a metaphor. This is meant for the church. So why should, I suppose you could ask, why should a perfect, moral, and absolutely good God ask you to love your enemies, even those who have done evil to you? Well, because that's surely what he does. Isn't that the point here of verse 45b? It's quite a good day for to read this. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Growing up, I, we knew this poem. The rain, it rains on the just and unjust fella, but mainly on the just because the unjust has stolen the just's umbrella. It was relevant in the UK at least. And the chief difficulty in view, surely, is not our difficulty, right, in this, but it's God's difficulty, the profound problem of the cross, how God will reconcile to himself people who are rightly his enemy and who have broken his just law, the infinitely just creator who is to reckon with the daily cost, think of this, of holding back the demands of his rightful justice. As he sees the multitudes in Ukraine right now stamped underfoot. We're not even talking about combatants. We're talking about people who are dying there. Or people in Africa who are starving to death. Much of it because of the neglect of the Western world that has the resources. Of places where his own name is is trampled through the mire in Western culture daily and yet God has chosen to hold back the demands of his rightful justice for the sake of his grace and his mercy. We know the way the world is. I don't know if you remember something called the Biosphere Project. It was about 20 years ago now. There were two of these in the Arizona desert. A group of eight researchers placed inside a sealed environment in the desert uh, to see uh, whether uh, humans could thrive in a space colony, and actually they did pretty well in terms of food and shelter, Uh, What they didn't do well with was socially. Within apparently a matter of weeks, they had divided into two camps that didn't speak to each other for the rest of the two years. That's what we fallen human beings will fallenly do. But that is not God's nature. Paul has this little phrase in Romans 5, which gives us a glimpse into the core of his personality. While we were his enemies, Paul says, he reconciled us to him by the death of his son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we will wait to see our advantage done, but God, by his nature, who is holier than we are, obviously takes action first. So the gospel requires us, verse 45, to bear that same behavioral characteristic as the Father has. We are to demonstrate that characteristic because we belong to him now and because we are signposts not for ourselves, but for his mercy. And that cost will have a social dimension. the People that you want to be with at church, the people that you will have over to your home, the kinds of people you will hang out with as friends, Think of all the ways that that's playing out now in our national conversation about politics and ethnicity and culture and religion. And Jesus rebukes here the tribalism in the church. If you love those who love you, if you greet only your brothers, do not even tax collectors and Gentiles do the same. So, these are big issues for the church still today. And there are things that personally we need to wrestle with and apply if we are going to apply the gospel of Christ. In closing, let me uh, share a final illustration. My wife and I were in Lowe's yesterday. We're not particularly handy people. We don't go there often. We have no idea where things are. And this very nice man who was overhearing our conversation Uh, volunteered to help us. He took us out of his way to find where the right diverter for the shower was. We didn't know what a diverter was. He knew exactly where it was. And while we have you, we said to him, uh, do you happen to know where the WD-40 is? I said, okay. And he trudged us over to to, to aisle uh, 18 uh, to show us where that was and what size we needed. And and then we said, one more thing, Uh, do you happen to know where you get one of those stopper things that you put on the door to stop the door? banging against the wall. He said, okay, and he took us over to that. The nicest man in Lowe's, I think, yesterday, getting a little tired of us, strangers, and our requests. I imagine he had a life of his own, but he didn't get to lead it yesterday. What do we Christians then do with the gospel? The gospel of this perfect God who has not just given up his time for strangers, but has given up his life For his enemies that's the template that's what we've been given that's the deal that we have signed up to live under that is what marks us out as being different from the world not that we're nice people not that we're moral people because we're not but we stand for him and we obey him and we follow him so this is the mission of those that God has made his friends in Christ Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray. Father, this is hard for us. There's not one person in the room right now that couldn't see to some degree somebody that they are at odds with who will find this difficult. Who will be able to conjure up reasons for themselves why they should avoid that particular person this morning, why they should look out for their own rights, why they should wait for their own advantage to be taken, and yet you, Jesus, have said, your church needs to be different. Your church needs to be characterized by what you have done. Your church, because of your grace, needs to be marked by your character and not our own fallen nature. Lord, this is hard for us, and because of that, we need your Spirit, that as we choose to do these things, as difficult as they are, by faith, Lord, that you would give us the power and the grace to be able to do them. Lord, would you make your church different? Lord, would you make us the church of Jesus? Would you make us stand out, we pray, in these things, in Christ's name. Amen.